RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, I am happy that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Before we start off, my guest this week, Crowbar, Devin Storm uh, from ECW WCW fame, uh, is going to tell his story, and uh, I think you're going to have a blast. I had a blast talking to him, and I think I know you're going to have a blast listening to him, including some great uh, public enemy, Bill DeMott, uh, stories and working with David Flair. But uh, before we go there, I want to thank everybody for the uh, positive feedback on the Tracy Smothers story. Uh, I was in contact with Mick Foley a little bit and he retweeted the link and uh, and, and I know Mick's all in on on Tracy. And, and, and so I, just, I appreciate, got a lot of good feedback. Um, it was my honor and I was humbled to do it to, and that he let me uh, give him the platform to tell his story about his fight. If uh, for some reason you didn't get to hear it, uh, it's still there, as is all the archives uh, that we've done going back two and a half plus years on City Ringside. So check that out. Also, be sure if you don't already to follow me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word, at David Penzer. Love to talk about pro wrestling and uh, answer questions and have some fun. And uh, uh, I've been bored. So like usually at about one o'clock in the morning, I'm out out there chatting with people. So if you're a night owl or if you're in a different time zone, uh, come on board at David Penzer and uh, and let's talk because I got nothing going on at the present time other than taping this podcast. So I um, want to thank uh, Tracy and, 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 and hope he's doing well. If, um, if you uh, didn't know or if you didn't hear the podcast, he has a, a new autobiography coming out, a new biography, um, and it is out. And all you got to do is Google Tracy Smothers book or go on Amazon and put in Tracy Smothers and you could order the book. Uh, I'm waiting for it to come. I know Mick Foley ordered it uh, last night as we taped this. So um so be sure to do that and help out a good guy. And speaking of good guys, we have another good guy on this week. Uh, going to tell his story, and uh, th- I know you're going to enjoy it. As I said earlier, he is the former WCW Hardcore Tag Team and Cruiserweight Champion. Please welcome Devin Storm slash Crowbar to City Ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Old Friends Month on City Ringside, and this week uh, we're going to welcome right now a... Old friend of mine, again, one of the nicest guys. It's old friend and nice guy uh, uh, time. So I guess Bobby Eaton has to be next week's guest, except he won't pick up the phone. But anyway, want to welcome this week uh, former WCW tag team, hardcore cruiserweight champion, my friend Crowbar, Devin Storm. Uh, welcome to City Ringside. Been a long time. Been looking forward to having you and um, glad you could finally get jump on. Thanks, Dave, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Really nice, man. Uh, well, miss you very much. Uh, the feeling's mutual. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, we had Tracy Smothers on last week, so it's like nice guy week, but like Bobby uh, Newton won't pick up his phone. So um, <laughs> he, he doesn't He doesn't like to talk on the phone. As you, not even talk on the phone. He doesn't want to do an interview because he, gotcha. he, he thinks he mumbles. So And I mumble, too. So anyway, and I do, too, so, so we'll have a lot of mumbling going on, but we'll be all right. There you go. So it's been a long time and uh, started looking into your past. And I did not realize that you were trained 
by Iron Mike Sharp. Would that be correct? Because yeah. you never that, don't, ne- never believe anything on the internet 100%. That would be correct. I, I was like 16 years old, and it was just uh, – I. I tell people it, it, it was a phase in my life where I was a crazy wrestling fan. I'm still a crazy wrestling fan. A lot of guys in the business won't admit that I friggin' love wrestling and I'm still a huge fan of it. And that's why I still continue to perform, but crazy wrestling fan at that age. And it got to the point where I just wanted to do it and just had no idea how, or, you know, New Jersey had the monster factory, which was about at least two hours South of me, which was a little tough. And, through this guy, this guy, that guy, I found out that Mike Sharp was opening up a school, which was only about an, an hour and 10 minutes away. Uh, so I grabbed a job at a local catering hall, worked weekends, worked double shifts, got the money up. And when I was 17, went to Iron Mike Sharp School. And at that time, it was in Bricktown, New Jersey. Bricktown, New Jersey. Now, I've heard a lot. The reason that I bring this whole thing up is because I've heard a lot of stories about Iron Mike Sharp and the fact that he had, I guess we all do, but he had a lot of idiosyncrasies. It's easy for you to say. Idiosyncrasies. Yeah. See, see, Bobby, it's not, you're not the only one who, who stumbles. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so, so talk to me about that because I've heard some stories, you know, Brian Nobbs and guys in WWE talking about it back or WWF back in the day. How was it like to work for him? Was he a bit, uh, was he a little off or was he just, uh, you know, just like us all and just has, has their little uh, uh, things that they're. Uh, well, first off, OK, I did not know any better at that time. So at that time, it wasn't strange to 17 year old Chris Ford going to Mike Sharp school. But if you go to a wrestling school these days, you see your trainer might be in tights. Usually not. They're wearing sweat shorts, boots, knee pads t-shirt, what have you. Uh, We would get in the ring with Mike Sharp and Mike Sharp would suit up as if he was going to the garden, black trunks, black boots. He would oil all up and he would occasionally wear the armband. Sometimes not, but he, he would even put the armband on to train. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, and at and at that time, that didn't strike me as strange because I didn't, I had nothing to compare it to. Sure. But in hindsight, he was Mike Sharp even when he was training, and he would get in there and he would work with you, and he would growl and grumble and yell just as if he was at the garden. And and a lot of the idiosyncrasies are true. He had this gigantic bag. You know, it it wasn't your rolly bag or even a, a duffel bag or something like that. It it was the equivalent of a hockey bag, like a goalie bag, a giant zip-up bag. And inside of this bag were multiple layers of Ziploc bags of soap in this and underwear in this and socks in this. He was very meticulous. And inside this gigantic bag was a bunch of small bags that all had their place. And that's just the way Mike was. Yeah, I heard that. Uh, I've heard stories about that. You know, you'd get to the like you said, the garden, for example, you'd get to Madison Square Garden uh, at like seven, you know, six o'clock. The boys would. And Mike Sharp would it was there since like four thirty dressed completely in his gear, all oiled up, like he said, and ready to roll. But, hey, he's had a successful career. And um, did you have to sell the uh, the gimmick, uh, the, arm, the gimmick uh, elbow pad, arm, ba- arm pad? Uh, that was, was, was it was a lace-up 
leather forearm brace. And of, of course, uh, he would go, you know, like I'm saying, empty wrestling gymnasium, nobody there but the students. I actually was his first student. So when I was there, it was me and Mike. And then gradually guys would come in like Ace Darling, Supernova, Simon Dean, and, and, and that little group grew. But Mike would be there with one person or two students, and he would be in arena gear, like he was going to TV. And, so, and he would lay in that forearm, and whether you wanted to sell it or not, you sold it because it was real. <laughs> so you were basically doing studio wrestling way before anybody had any idea we were going to have to do studio wrestling. Yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what crazy times. So – you end up uh, doing the indies, and, and you lived in a good spot to, to hook up with uh, indies for sure in uh, New York, New Jersey, that whole area up and down the East Coast, Eastern Seaboard. Um, mid-90s, you end up in ECW. How'd that happen? And uh, oh. what were you, your thoughts jumping into something that at the time was uh, kind of crazy? Well, I, I had at first had a stint with WCW. They brought me down when they were starting to bring in the cruiserweights, and I worked with... Chris Canyon on the worldwide tapings. I worked Bunkhouse Buck on the worldwide tapings. And then I did a match with Conan on Nitro. And following that Conan match, I think I did one one Saturday night show against Eddie Guerrero, which was just awesome. And then uh, after that, it... I was still full-time in school. I was going to school to uh, be physical therapist. And... I, I just wasn't getting a lot of calls back. So uh, at that time, ECW was mainly out of Pennsylvania, as far north as Boston, and maybe down south as down far south as Baltimore. So it was very local for me, and it worked. And uh, they gave me a call to come in and work Taz a few months. I followed that that Nitro that I worked with Conan, and uh, I was there for close to a year. And uh, it was a crazy environment. It was definitely a crazy time. Guys were beating the hell out of each other. The fans loved it. Uh, I learned a lot there. It really was an awakening. At that point, I was still a kid. You know, still young in the wrestling business. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and whatever. Uh, and I would literally go from school to ECW, and I would study in the, the locker room because I was still trying to get my studies done. And the guys ripped me apart for it. I mean, I took so much abuse. Uh, I, I would literally leave school on a Friday, get to the building. I might get there maybe an hour or two before we even need to be, and I would break out my work. And I was tortured for it. But, uh, you know... It, all in all, it was a great experience. I really learned a lot as far as just uh, the way wrestling is and can be, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, it, it was a very, uh, like a lot of growth happened for me in that one year there. I was mainly used as an enhancement guy, had a few uh, back and forth matches here and there, but just really got my ass kicked for the most part. That there's a there's that's the, that's not a bad thing. That's how most no. people have to pay their dues, as you know. Sure. Yep. Um, I got to say, you mentioned your studies. The one thing I always respected about you, as I got to know you, is, uh, you know, it's very easy to get tempted out into this uh, crazy world of professional wrestling and the uh, the uh, the roar of the crowd and the lights of the arena. 
but you always uh, stayed true to, you know, getting your education, uh, getting your degree in physical therapy. I believe pretty much the whole time, other than maybe full time in WCW uh, that you were working, you were uh, you were still working uh, when you could as a physical therapist. Is that true? Sure. Uh, Even when I had gotten a spot as a crowbar, when I was signed there, you know, sometimes you're there, you know, four or five, six weeks in, in a row. And there's other weeks when your character is just not being used. There's nothing there for you. You're just not there. So often the days I, I would go to Nitro or, or Thunder, whatever it was, I, w- I would fly home and I would work per diem at, at, at a hospital. If I uh, wasn't being used for a, a few weeks and I knew that in, in advance, I would work at, at that hospital for weeks. So I even kept a hand in it while I was still full-time in uh, WCW doing a crowbar gimmick. You know what I mean? So I, uh, like I kept a hand in it and it helped late, later on. And you mentioned before there is, I was 20 something going down to nitro, going down to worldwide at the time, the hottest, company going and you know and a lot of guys will never admit it i'm down there with guys that i watched as a kid and my mind is friggin' blown there's hulk hogan there's flair there's there's arn anderson there's dave penzer's there my mind's blown (laughs) but uh uh and one of the things that really helped keep me on track was my parents always supported me pursuing wrestling but they always said make sure you get your education that's the easy one and it was it's it's easy to get away from that. You know, a lot of people don't listen to their parents, but at age 13 in my hometown, there was a gym called strong and shapely gym. And at that gym, uh, were two professional wrestlers worked out there. It was Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris and Jim Powers. So I knew these guys before I even went to Mike Sharp's school. And I would always chew their ear off about wrestling and how to get involved in this and that. And they were all, always more than cordial, very nice. They didn't blow me off. They didn't job me out for asking too many questions. They both actually made it a point to say it's an unforgiving business. Often it will never love you as much as you love it. And it's a hell of a way to make a living sometimes. So they said they encouraged me pursuing it, especially because they saw how passionate I was about it. But they always said, make sure you do something else because there's going to be a time when it's not going to be there. And he, and they said, when you get out there and you start doing the independence, uh, they said, you're going to see a lot of guys out there that are there, not because they want to be, because they have to be. And that's when you start to resent the business and you and you'll hate it. And they, they always looked out for my well being, and they always gave me advice. I think they saw how passionate I was about it. And I still am to this day, in case you can't tell, friggin' love wrestling. That's why I'm still doing it. But their advice and my ability to stick to their advice and follow their advice has enabled me to still love what I do and, and still do it on my terms right now. That's great stuff, man. And I have so much respect for that. Not, not just blowing smoke because you're on my podcast. I think we've had this conversation back in the WCW days. I don't want to jump ahead too far because I want to get your thoughts on Paulie and, and then a little bit more about ECW and then move forward. But sure. um, 
but but how, how crazy is it? How how, how do you kind of keep it all together in your head, or is that not a problem with you when you're in a main event? You're the WCW Tag Team Champions defending one week uh, Nitro in front of millions of people, and a couple days later you're in the hospital, you know, working with somebody in physical therapy. Does does it take? Do you do you have to kind of talk to yourself and say, you know, you know, kind of make an agreement that you're not really the character you play on TV, and all the people that ask you for autographs that doesn't define you know what you do you know sure. in, in your real life because a lot of people can't separate that gotcha not hard at all uh i'll go back to the fact i once again if if i say it too many times just rake my eyes love wrestling i'm i was am and always will be in the, my belief the biggest fan going so just me going down there it was Surreal. Me stepping into a ring in Iron Mike Sharp School. Surreal and something I'll never forget. Going out, you know, I, I had been doing a Saturday night show. They were grooming me as a cruiserweight. Uh, I, I had done several matches on there. And then the switch came where they thought I would be good with David to help him along, do more of the with the wrestling in, in, in the tag situation. And literally, I got a call one night saying, come down to Salisbury, Maryland. And I went from being Devin Storm to Crowbar. And I had a character, which was something that I never... I was always a fan of Cruiserweight wrestling, that athletic component, that, that more athletic style, the more Japanese style. I loved... WCW for the cruiserweights and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm also aware that a, a, a lot of the, the, the guys that had characters were a little higher up on, on the cards sometimes. So I never fathomed that I would be used in that capacity. So I get, get a call. They say, you got to come down to Salisbury, Maryland. We have an idea for you. It involves David Flair, Vampiro, and blah, blah, blah. And while I was doing a Saturday night show, Jimmy Hart was, had, had an idea where he thought me and Vampiro would make a great tag team. So I thought at first, maybe I'm going down there to be Vampiro's tag team partner. I really wasn't sure. Then I go down there, they give me the whole storyline, how I'm going to be working at a gas station, your crowbar, and you're going to go with... David Flair, and then our first night out, we win the tag belt. So that was mind-blowing that I'm WCW tag champs with David Flair, son of Ric Flair, which is, it's, you know, I'm saying, once again, it was, an, it was an impossible dream realized just to get there, and then just to have the tag belts was just gravy on that. So, but I also never lost sight of who I was. I was Chris Ford huge wrestling fan, whatever your belief system is blessed by God, Jesus, whatever mother earth, good karma that I was able to do this. And I never lost that. And, and I always held on to bill and Jimmy powers words that it's not forever. So I kept a hand in the physical therapy. I wanted to keep sharp. And honestly, I love doing that job as well. It's, it, it's another career that I love in a totally different way. Sounds corny. I love being a, able to earn a living helping people. And at that time, I didn't know it, but a lot of the doctors on the floors, you know, when you work an outpatient, you see the patients that come in and you work with them. When you're in the hospital, all the doctors are on, on the floor. They're up on the floors. You're working hand in hand with them. You're speaking with them about your patients. And a lot of those doctors were closet wrestling fans. So 
They were, they were putting me over saying, hey, I saw you Monday night or I saw you on Thunder. That's pretty cool, blah, blah, blah. And a pretty cool dynamic happened that I didn't even know would happen at that time. You know, you always think when you, you know, you fast forward years later and I decided to open up my own practice, my physical therapy practice. One of the hardest things is getting patience and nothing's worse than going on a cold call. When you're going somewhere, Hey, I'm John Smith. I have a physical therapy practice. Send me some people. You really don't know me, but take a chance on me. I was able to go to all these doctor's offices and I had no cold calls. They were all guys that I knew from the floor. And granted, once they sent the patients to my facility, I had to deliver and get these people well, but it it made the, uh, getting the contact for my business and marketing my business a lot easier. And that was a, a dynamic that I had no idea at the time would ever come back to serve me, uh, 10, 12 years later. That's great. One more thing about your uh, your real world job, and then we'll get back to the pretend world of wrestling. Um, how, how often back in the day, or even still, do people do, were people that were patients doing like a double take when they saw you? You know, trying to figure out if you were who they thought you were. That they, they they watched on TV, and you ever? Uh, how how often did that happen, and how, how did you handle that? Well, more so now than then. You know, of course, really? you, you know, when you're fresh off. No, no, actually, sorry. More so than the now, you know, oh, you're okay. fresh off, off TV. People recognize you more. And when I first came off of TV for WCW, it was constant. You know, the patients would recognize me or ask or one patient would know and they would tell the other other patient that's there and, and, and it would spitball like that. Uh, and it's actually a really cool story. Our, my our daughter's godparents is actually this guy called Craig Sticks and his wife, Kathy. Craig was a patient of mine right after WCW. And he came in, took a double take, big wrestling fan. We just hit it off great. We just hit it off super great. And it's amazing how people come into your lives. This guy became probably one of my best friends, the godparent of our children. We still keep in contact and Craig will actually do an independent show up here from time to time, maybe two, three times a year as a referee and he's older looking. So he looks more legit than a lot of the younger guys. And like me, gigantic wrestling fan. And you know, when a guy's a fan and he gets it, they just perform well. He's, he goes out there two, three times a year. He gets it, and he does an exceptional job, and we work together, and it's just a real hoot. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it, like from that dynamic of having somebody recognize me at work that was a, a patient, I gained one of my best friends of all time. That's really awesome. cool story. That's awesome for sure. So real quickly, let's get back, put a period at the end of the ECW sentence. Talk to me about your thoughts on Paulie and how he helped your career. Okay, well, a lot of people complain about checks bouncing and stuff like that. I was at there at a time. I was full-time in physical therapy school, full-time student. I would study all week. I would go to the gym all week, and I had the weekend to do wrestling. So I had made the conscientious decision. I'm going to do school in a gym during a week. I'm going to wrestle on the weekends and pretty much have no social life. But during that time, uh, every check cleared, which was great. But I, 
I'm really not sure if it was more Paul, if it was more the other guys. You know, in wrestling, there's always a hierarchy of cliques and authority and talent that has pull and this and that. I really wasn't, in hindsight, not well-liked there. And that's cool. That happens. It's a learning experience in life. You know, I, uh, you know, I spoke about it a few weeks ago. I was, I got heat for not taking guys heads off with chair shots. Given my background, I knew that hurling way back and whacking somebody in the head was not good for them. But I also did not follow that for myself. Cause you know, you've probably seen the matches where I've taken some bad chair shots for myself, but I didn't feel comfortable doing that to another person. So I got heat for that. I got heat for being a student. <laughs> uh, at that time, I got heat for being from WCW. And it's, uh, they also wanted me to go more to their school, which was located in Long Island. And it just wasn't a thing that I could do with my schedule, you know, with my school schedule and stuff like that. So... It got me ring time. Uh, I learned a lot about the business and how the politics of the business works. And if one or two guys don't like you, you're probably done and this and that. But all in all, great wrestling experience, great life experience for how things actually function in the real world. Uh, And, you know... At that time, there was, it was just good growth. It was hard growth. You know, I actually spoke about this on uh, another podcast years ago, and uh, they took it and said, Crowbar says he was bullied in ECW. I never used that word. I'm not, and I would never use that word because I'm just not a pussy. But, <laughs> but I'm saying it's – you choose to get into pro wrestling. It's a tough business. Guys, you know, guys could be very rough with their words. They could be rough in the ring. It's all part of it. So that whole experience, as bad as it may have been at the time, I always got paid and I just learned a, a lot of wrestling and life lessons. And I made a, a few real, a few really, really good friends, you know, to this day, I, I still stay in contact with the, Danny Doring often, Roadkill often, Little Guido often, Big Sal often. So I've made friends that have lasted me past that. So there's nothing that I, I would ever change there. It, it was a great experience. And even now, I've, uh, you know, on text and I am, I've spoken to Taz. We all grow up, we become better people, and we all laugh about this. Like, Taz, at that time, he hated me. He hated me. We had a little back and forth on, on uh, like the internet years ago, a tiff about, uh, he, he said something on the WWE program. He, uh, they had going at, at, at the time. And the funniest thing is I sent them a picture about two, three years ago. My son has a towel on his head saying, uh, survive. If I let you, my son friggin' likes Taz <laughs> more than me. And, and I just thought that that was the most ironic, funny stuff of all time. And I had to send it to him. And uh, even during the, the pandemic, you know, once this thing started, he goes, Dad, do you think Taz is okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I had to, I sent Taz a text and I said, yeah, just so you know, ironically, my son wants to know if Taz is okay. So 
that's how that goes. You know, and it's so it's it's so it's such an important part of the business, especially back in the '90s and '80s. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that you're talking about life lessons as a parent, like you are, and I I, I, I raised two sons who are now adults. But you know, everything has to be about life lessons, mistakes, success. Uh, you know, even bullying and stuff like that has to be about hey, you know, life's not always fair, and 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 you know, there's no guarantees that your boss is going to like and- you. Adversity makes you the person you are. Adversity and how you handle the and I know that's an old school saying, but I'm I'm a big believer in that. For certain people, adversity is good and it shapes you into a better person. For me personally, that ad, adversity got to a point where my last match there, I worked with John Reckner, Balls Mahoney, and I had known Balls from the independent circuit in New Jersey and I love the guy. He was a great guy. And on that night, it was his first debut. And at the time, the gimmick of Balls Mahoney was like a S&M bondage biker guy. And they had a few spots where I was selling and he was going to hump my head or hump my butt or something <laughs> like that. And if it was anybody else, I was like, oh, fuck. Part of my language. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, we're fine. We're fine. We're okay. Good. And but I had known John, and 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 I said, John, I go. If this was anybody else, I would say no. I go, but I want you to do good here. I I think this is good for you. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do the squash. I'm going to let you basically sodomize my head and my <laughs> butt on TV. And and I told him before the match, I said, when this is over, I'm just telling him that I'm leaving. So everything kind of built up there. I learned a lot. And on that night, I told Ty Gordon, I told Paul I'm done. And that night was the straw, the bit of adversity that – made me say, I'm going to, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to be better. I'm going to get in better shape. I'm going to be a better in ring performer and I'm going to do better. And that they never fired me. Cause I, I think Paulie ever, ever fired anybody. Really. I just said, I'm, I'm done and I'm going to go off the grid for a while. I'm going to go back to the Indies and I'm, I'm going to spend a lot of time in local wrestling schools and I'm going to get myself in shape. If you remember back then I wore like this, like this singlet with a shirt underneath to cover up my body. I had some baby fat still. And I said, I'm going to get myself in shape. I'm going to become a better worker and I'm done here here this evening, but before I go out, I'm going to make sure that my friend has a good launching pad. And that was it. That's great. That's great stuff. Hey, uh, I didn't know this actually, but it, it looks like between ECW and W uh, back in WCW, you had a cup of coffee in uh, WWF. Was that a, were you under a contract or were you just a day player there? No, uh, I, I, I had been going back and forth and uh, Cornette was very active active on the, the, the Northeast independence, like especially with Dennis Corluzzo of the NWA. And he had actually managed me in Ace in Darling for a while. And we had actually done a few matches with WCW. Ace was also full-time in school. It, so it started with me doing WCW. I went to ECW. And then me and Ace as, as a team did some stuff for WCW. Uh, you know, basically jobber tag team and stuff like that. And then when WWE started doing their light heavyweight division and Cornette told me at, at, at the time, he goes, we're going to try to do this. We know that the top guys are in WCW. You know, the Benoit's, the Guerrero's, the, 
the Mysterios, he goes, but I told Vince, I, uh, I could get these guys for the tournament. And that, uh, got me to do the WWE light heavyweight tournament. And, um, I got to work with Taka. I did a shotgun Saturday night against ACE. I worked against ACE actually on raw, which was supposed to be an eight minute match, but it ended up being like a 32nd match. Cause it was the night Bret Hart did the enema in Pittsburgh, uh, promo that went way over so we literally had 30 seconds to do our match and uh that was actually a wild story i was on my internship different than classes you're on an internship you're working in 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 a hospital it's for a grade and they called me to do raw and i had to beg my instructor i said hey i have this opportunity i'm going to drive to pittsburgh monday i'll be back tuesday morning so ace and i Drove to Pittsburgh from New Jersey, which is like eight hours or so. Monday, we got to the show. We did our 30-second match, and then we drove back all night. Who knows how, how the hell we made it home alive, exhausted. And, and I was on my internship the next day at, at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey. Uh, and just, it, it was just, so I worked days twice. I, I worked with Brian Christopher once, and I worked with, Taka Michinuku uh, wants doing the light heavyweight thing. And then Cornette actually pushed to bring us in as, as a tag. I had team for, you know, on, on and off with Ace Darling for years. We worked with an independent team in, in a dark match called the Misfits in Philadelphia. Uh, and we worked with uh, Scotty Tuhati and Brian Christopher as well for a shotgun Saturday night. Cool. So you talked about um, bounce around a lot at that time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you could do that back then. That was good. Now you, you kind of have to pick somewhere, um, which isn't bad either. I guess if you pick the right place and you get the right spot. Sure. Um, you mentioned uh, getting the crawl to, call to be crowbar. Whose idea was that? Because I know Jimmy, you mentioned Jimmy when you were doing Saturday Night had been pushing for you to uh, to get a, a character. And I know he did that for a lot of guys. Uh, you could count them on uh, 10 hands. But um, uh, who, who was that a Jimmy Hart idea? Was that a uh, Russo idea? Was that a Bischoff well, idea? Was that a Ric Flair I'll idea? I'll tell you a story that I got. This is a story that I heard. So I was still doing Devin Storm on Saturday night. And I had worked a Saturday night show in... Vail, Colorado. And then on that night, I worked against Chris Benoit. We meant to, we main evented the Saturday night show. We, we, we had a great match. Uh, and that was a match that Jimmy, that Jimmy Hart had set up. He wanted me to work with Chris. He made sure Chris made me look good. I'm, I still watch that match to this day. And, and, uh, I mark out big time, you know, and also on that same night, I forget who somebody got into a car accident and they couldn't make it to the building. So, uh, somebody was supposed to work with Booker T and they couldn't make it. And Jimmy Hart goes, you want to do this? And it was right after, it was right after the Benoit match. When you do the tapings, you know, they get aired in, in a different order. I had worked Benoit and then like three matches later, it was Booker T and Jimmy Hart goes, and that's Vail, Colorado, very thin air. I'm exhausted, and we killed each other for however long the match went, like eight minutes or so. Do you want to work, work Booker T? Yes, yes. So on that night, I had worked Chris Benoit and Booker T. We get wow. back to the hotel. Uh, I don't know if – I'm not exactly sure of the exact time frame. Did Thunder follow 
Saturday, Saturday night sometimes or not? Or no, it was, was it? Uh, it was night show on Mondays, Thunder taping on Tuesdays, and every other Wednesday was Saturday night. Okay, so for some reason, Saturday night was still there, or they had brought me in the day before Saturday night or something like that. And the story that I got was Vince Russo was at the bar. I walked in with my leather jacket, my hair down, and he liked my look, I, I, I guess, and asked who that was. Yada, yada, yada. It was a few weeks later when Crowbar was born. That's the story I got was he saw the way I looked. He liked the way I looked. And I assume he checked out my work and came up with an idea to put me with David Flair. That all sounds 100% legit, except about the bar part. As, as you know, and most people who listen know, I'm, I, I always... Well, it was, was a bar like, restaurant, so I don't know that oh, okay, they were yeah, eating, too. I was, yeah. was going to say, because I was always, uh, almost always at the bar afterwards, and uh, uh, you never very rarely saw Russo at the bar. But yeah, no, it was, it was a bar restaurant. restaurant. There was uh, eating going on there, too. It was a big hotel bar slash restaurant. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, let me ask you about Shannon Spruill. I, we've had her on the podcast. and She's um, awesome. Yes. It's, it's such an interesting story because I'll never forget. They brought her in. She was an actress. Who yes. did, you know, she did local acting in, the, in commercials and stuff, and they got her through an acting agency for those of people who may not know or who didn't listen to the podcast. But if you haven't listened to that podcast and you want to hear an uh, interesting, uh, fascinating story about her career, um, you could uh, uh, check that out in the um in the uh, uh, archives, but um, but but as you and I know, she was brought in for a one one night shot to uh, to do some interviews or, or or something with you, and it turned into not only a full time gig, but it turned into a career where she started wrestling. Um, what, what, were you uh, were you the person that they brought her in for that one night for? And uh, what did you think? When, you know, when you when you saw her, she actually was with. David, just before I That's got right. That's right. brought in, and and they brought me down to Salisbury, Maryland, for that gas station bit that we did with Vampiro and the Mistress, a big Jersey band, which was ironic right there. Uh, and she had already been with David at that time, and then they put us together, and then yada yada yada. I love Seinfeld, so I use yada yada yada. <laughs> was uh, the next week where. The little freaking tag champs, which was just nuts. But Shannon's a great person. Uh, we still keep in contact. She's a very creative person too. And just with the stuff that I'm doing now, I, I have nowhere where I have no idea where it goes. It's just fun. I'm having a great time. But her feedback is great. We keep in contact. Great person. But she was she had gotten into wrestling, and she was the type of person didn't take it for granted. One iota. She respected it. She liked it. She had an athletic background. So as I'm working with David, she's letting me know that she's done gymnastics and this and that. And I go, okay, might be cool. Let's try teaching you a Frankensteiner. And she did it. No problem at all. Then she did the one where she jumps off the rope and hooks the Frankensteiner. I don't know the technical words. I know in this day and age is a technical word for each and every rendition or variation of a Frankensteiner. She knew the top rope Frankensteiner and the Frankensteiner where they j jump off the rope and they catch you and you Frankensteiner. So, uh, but she took it seriously. She appreciated it, was not taken for granted. And I, I honestly think she added a whole lot to our whole 
characters there. You know, the, well, the three of us I thought had a great synergy, and I think we I think we connected with that younger generation XE population, if that's right. Um, I'm not sure of, of the generation where uh, we're discussing there, but that younger <laughs> teenage 20, 20s population, when we would hit those college towns for shows, we got bigger pops than when we would hit the traditional markets, if that makes sense. Oh, no, no, I got you. No, it was a great act. And I think actually Shannon told that story when it's been about two years since she's been on the podcast. But she actually told that story, if I remember correctly, about uh, you teaching her how to do all that stuff and her trying to get you to teach her stuff. And and I just think the story is fascinating, like I said, because she was, you know, it's not like she was interested in being a wrestler. Even she was brought in as an actress, as it a day player. And, and then she was supposed to make, you know, whatever, a couple hundred bucks for one appearance with David Flair. And it turned into a career that unfortunately uh, had to end prematurely because of, uh, of, of head injuries, uh, yeah. which is a whole different story that's uh, that's tragic. But yeah, I, 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 I thought she was great. You guys were great. Uh, David Flair, you know, because... Um, Rick was became a friend of mine. Um, I tra- traveled a lot with Arn and sometimes with Rick and got to know Rick pretty good. And so, David, I was always to me like, you know, uh, you, you almost had to I don't want to say protect him because that's the wrong word. But he was thrown in the middle of a situation that he probably that, that probably anybody else would have ran away kicking and screaming and and never come back. But he stayed through it. Um, so I always just tried to, to help him out, give him a word of encouragement. Talk to me about working with David because he was in a strange spot. He was, you know, he was Ric Flair's son, obviously. Uh, sure. A great, you know, you know, you could say one of, if not the greatest of all time. Um, sure. He probably wasn't ready for the spot that he had, or wasn't probably even ready to be in the business. But they threw him in there anyway, and he took it and and uh, and ran with it. What uh, What did you see? And you know, what did you? You know, I know you guys probably traveled around together and stuff. Uh, sure. How hard was it on David for? Uh, for you know the pressure that was being thrown on him at the time. So I had been at at the power plant doing a cruiserweight thing. Devin Storm being groomed to be the this evil, more aggressive cruiserweight guy. That's where I was. So then they tell me you're going to Salisbury, Maryland, and I at first assume that's going to be a tag with Vampiro because Jimmy Hart had had discussed that he thought that that would be a really cool idea. I get down there and. Mm-hmm. They kind of give me the layout that you're going to be with David Flair. He's whacking people with a crowbar. You're going to be called crowbar when he asks you what your name is. So you're going to connect. So prior to that, I had never met David. I just watched him on the the program and you know, I'm thinking in, in the back of my head, there's a pretty good shot. He's probably going to be full of himself or conceded Ric Flair's son, blah, blah, blah. And I meet him and he's the complete opposite. Super humble, super nice, great guy. He knew that he was limited. He knew he was in a spot that was good, but he knew that he was limited and he acknowledged it. And again, he knew it. And he always asked for help. When we had spare time, he asked me to show him some stuff and we would get in the ring before the shows and we would practice and we would keep it simple, but good. One of the, I actually had a, a singles match with 
David, I think it was on Thunder. I'm almost positive. And we went eight to ten minutes, and it was no five-star match. But I can say from us working hand-in-hand for so many months that it was solid and it was good. And he he knew his limitations, but what you taught him, he soaked up like a sponge. If you suggested something, he, he would tell you, no, I can't do that. And if you suggested something else, he would say, yes, I, I think I can do that. And, and we would work on that. I actually loved working with David. It was a lot of fun. And if he was not limited, the odds are I may have not have gotten this spot as Crowbar. You know what I mean? I might have gone on just doing the cruiserweight thing, which could have been a whole different Tangent, maybe better. Who knows? You know, like you never know. You don't know the, you know, it's easy. To, it's easy. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback that now I'm mumbling. But uh, as far as David goes, great guy. We just hung out and it was honestly me, Shannon, David. We were three young kids in a really great spot and just having a lot of fun. And that does that's not PC to say in wrestling. Sometimes, you know, that you, you know, you're not supposed to show your cards or be a quote unquote mark. We were three young kids in a great spot and we, and we were grateful for that spot and having a grand old time and however long it lasted. Great. You know what I mean? It, it was just a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. And and David, you know, I've tried to get him on the podcast. He really wants nothing to do with wrestling. And uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> you know, he was he was uh he he's probably in my top three, but he, you know, he's not gonna do it. And I respect that because he knew he knew that it wasn't for him being, you know, Ric Flair's son and 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 he knew it wasn't for him and he just he walked away from it and he's been very successful and I got a lot of love in my heart. Give him a big hug every time I see him and 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 back. The the one thing I'll say is before anybody feels too bad about David. David Flair and that experience. I always like to say he hooked up with uh, Stacy Keebler for about six months. So yeah, <laughs> uh, he probably he probably forgot all the bad, uh, you know, the you know being green and 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 all the stuff, and it probably has a wonderful a wonderful memory. Of, I'm uh, sure. Yes. So, <laughs> I always tell people don't feel too bad for Dave Flair because uh, you know he did hook up with Stacy Keebler. God bless him. Um, God bless him indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I had to say that. Um, you gotta. You just gotta. You talk. You talk about being the biggest wrestling fan in the world, and I believe you. Um, if I'd have told you when this whole thing started that you would be at the final Starcade ever, and which we didn't know at the time, and you would wrestle Terry Funk for the Hardcore Championship, what would a eighteen-year-old uh, Chris Ford would have told me? No effing way. <laughs> I'd say the word, but I'm trying to be polite, but that's no, what I, I would say. say. No fucking way. No, that's not good. You're crazy. He's my, he's my favorite of all time. My favorite wrestler, my favorite person in the business. I, I just One of my to... favorite matches to this day, and we use it actually on a promo there before the match, or actually the, the match that followed, which was Sin, I think, it was a pay-per-view called Sin, where it was me, Terry, and Meng. One of my favorite matches was Ric Flair versus Terry Funk, New York Knockout. I quit match, and I quit what match. I liked about that match, that was hardcore before hardcore is actually labeled. And I like hardcore wrestling. I love hardcore wrestling. I don't like garbage wrestling. And what I mean by that is when you watch that match, they use weapons, but they use stuff 
that naturally occurred at the time at ringside. They used a chair. They used a ringside announcer's table. They used a microphone wire. They bashed each other into the guardrail, but they didn't go underneath the ring and grab a garbage can. They didn't grab uh, a kendo stick. They didn't grab a stick ball bat. They used stuff that was normally, they pulled mats up, I believe even, you know, they, they did things, they used props that normally occur there, which I think in my mind, it makes it believable. And I remember being a fan watching this and just being so sucked into this brutality that was going on. And even to this day, when you watch it, it still makes sense. It still tells a story and it's believable. So I I was always drawn to that match and it sticks out so vividly in my mind. And I became such a Terry Funk fan at that point in time. And then just to fast forward to go to Starcade, which was WCW's version of WrestleMania, I'm wrestling Terry Funk for the hardcore title on Starcade. Mind blowing. <laughs> Nothing else to say. Mind blown. Yeah, of course. Hey, I don't know if you, I hate to put you on the spot, but did you catch WrestleMania this year? I, I caught bits and pieces of it. Honestly, I still watch wrestling, but admittedly, when I do cardio at home, I have a bike at home, I do my cardio at home, I usually watch, and this is what I watch WWE, WCW, or whatever it would be, WWF at the time. I like the 92, 93 to like 96 period a whole lot. That's what I watch a lot of. But I, I, I watch what's going on just so I'm cognizant of what's going on and stuff like that. And usually WrestleMania is an excuse to get together with friends, eat a lot of bad food, drink some beer, get some Buffalo wings and just splurge off my diet and just get a group together that hasn't gotten together in a while. It's usually Danny Doring, Roadkill, Big Sal and little, little Guido will pop by once in a while. This year was weird because of the whole social distancing thing, but I, 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 I watched about, I'd say, a good 80 to 90% of this year's show. Yeah. All right. The reason I'm asking you that is because um, I had to watch. I had to watch it. We were going to originally do a myself and uh, the boss Jerry Pitak, who you spoke to earlier off the off the air. Uh, we were going to do a, a show about it, so I watched it uh, very carefully and took copious notes. It turned out for a number of reasons, including me going being called back to do Impact Wrestling, that uh, I couldn't. We couldn't get it done. But one of the, the thing that I wrote next to the Kevin Owens Seth Rollins match was that it reminded me of the Terry Funk Ric Flair I quit match. Really? So I don't know wow. if you, I don't know if you saw that match, but it, it, a lot of, you know how Terry was 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 you know pretty much yelling at Rick the whole time, you know, on yes. the microphone and stuff. Yep. Well, you know, there was no microphone, but it was an empty arena so you could hear it and it just reminded me of of, of that match, which is why I asked you cuz that's one of my favorite matches as well that that uh I quit match, you know, two of the greatest of all time and in in a different kind of environment and Terry was so good on the mic, you know, no matter what you did and and so yeah um, so let me ask you a question. I'll go back go to this. Is this is a total aside too? That match, R- R- Ric Flair Funk, I quit. My personal favorite Ric Flair entrance of all time because they spliced the normal Ric Flair music with fanfare for the common man. If you think back, and it just made for such a grandiose entrance. If you go back, it's the traditional 
Was it 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yeah. But right before that, they splice in Fanfare for the Common Man, and it just made for such a dramatic entrance, in my opinion, of course. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at that. I don't remember that. But, um, but yeah, I'll go back. And that's the great thing about uh, technology today is I could just hit a button, and most likely I'll be able to pull that up. Sure. So, so let me ask you this. You're getting your – you know, for, without a doubt, your biggest, some would say your first push in a major wrestling company and probably on cloud nine. And at the same time, whether you knew it or not, and that's that's one of the main questions, the, the company is pretty much crumbling around uh, down but around you. Were you aware of that? And if so, uh, how did you kind of deal with that? Because it was uh, it was it was tough back then. Talent was aware of it and I was aware of it. You saw the difference in in the ratings. You heard the grumblings and and everything like like that. And was I concerned? Yes. And but I always go back to what I said before. It's at that time I was a young kid in, in the candy store, just happy to be there. I had graduated. I had my degree. I knew that when it was all over. As much as I didn't want it to be over, I didn't want it to end, I didn't want the company to go under, I knew I'd be okay. You know, it, it wasn't a financial thing, it was more of a heartbreaking thing. I wanted it to last, I wanted it to keep going, but I knew financially I'd be safe, uh, but it was tough seeing it go down. And then, of, of course, once the let the sale happen to WWE, I had already been released. You're wondering if you're going to be picked up, but there's this whole sea of guys going there. And there's a very limited number of spots. So the reality was always there. Once that happened, I'm like, it would be really cool to be there. But I, you know, I, I, I had a few dark matches. I just, I, I was always a realist and I just didn't see it happening. I tried, I made my contacts. I, reached out, but it just didn't happen. And I've always been realistic in spite of myself. My heart always wanted to do more and be involved more. But I always, like you said before, when I was on nitro, but then going back to physical therapy, were you able to separate the two? I was always able to separate the two, even though at times I didn't want to. And, you know, you saw the writing on the wall. You hoped it would get better. You hoped that things would improve, and it just didn't. But I just wrote it out as long as I could, enjoyed myself, and you know, I, uh, you know, it sounds very cliche to say that you put it in God's hands. Yeah, and it, you know, look, it does and that's an important part of your story. It, it doesn't suck to have a, a, a physical therapy degree to go back to. Um, you know, there was a lot of nervous people out there. How, including yours truly, how am I going to pay my bills and raise my family? You know, raise my family. Um, sure. So you know that 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 you know at that point that was while I under certainly understand you were having the time of your life and 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 didn't want to attend at least you don't have to worry about how are you going to pay your bills so so that's the you know and that's one of the things about your story I think is so special hey you mentioned being buddies with Bill DeMott are you were you an official member ever of the Chubba Bubba's well I I admittedly I'm guilty of this I I would not <laughs> I have to buy it, but I know there's a story in his book. Uh, and it was the first time I was brought down to WCW and they were doing the tapings in Orlando and they had brought, uh, and you'll 
remember this once I start to tell this, I'm sure. Uh, they brought me down to Orlando. I had worked Canyon on the Worldwide, I think, whatever was called in Orlando, and I had worked Bunkhouse Buck. And I stayed with Billy, who I had known from New Jersey, but I never really got crazy up here with Billy. I would always go to an in, <laughs> independent show. I would occasionally see him, and then I would go home and that was it. And I knew Billy from the gym. It was big Billy from the gym, you know, prior to becoming Hugh Morris, he was big, sweet William, the independent wrestler, this big dude. And he was always, he, he was like a big brother for me. I had known Ted Petty from being the cheetah kid and Johnny Gruns from being Johnny Ryan. So I go down and Billy lets me stay with him and Ted, Ted, Teddy staying with Johnny. And I know I'm, when I'm, Bill... la I'm laughing and I don't even know what story you're about to tell, but just, just with those, so, with, with those characters in the story, it has to be uh, fantastic. But just picture those three and innocent. I, I think at the time, maybe 20, 21 year old Chris Ford, never really you been out have, of, you, you never had a chance, Chris. I had never had a chance and <laughs> going there with a guy that I had known from my gym was like a big brother slash father figure, very, very stern and very preachy and always looking out for my well-being. And now I'm in this new environment with a different Bill DeMott. And I think you'll remember this story. So I did, I'm trying to remember, I had worked Conan for Nitro first on a dark match. And then it brought me back the following week for an aired match. But that had and had ended Billy, Johnny, Teddy all went out to a country Western bar and they invited me along and I'm not going to say no, although I have no idea what I'm in for, but that was the night. If you remember when they took, I'm, trying to get the story right. So just if you know the a better version, correct me. They took the production <laughs> guy's van. You know, they got the keys to the production guy. They didn't have their own rent-a-car, so they somehow stole the production crew's van. So they took the van to the Country Western Bar, and they had some cocktails there. And yada, 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 they get back to the hotel when it's all over, and they decide to go to, I believe, Burger King it was. I, I, I believe it was the Burger King. I think Johnny was driving, but I'm not sure. Oh, but they basically go into the drive-thru, and they mow down the whole speaker light-up thing there the thing where you place your order mow the whole thing down were you in the truck were you in the van now, i w i was in the back seat and s <laughs> somewhere there no john johnny grunge couldn't have been driving because I, I remember this i'm in the second row of seats johnny grunge has to urinate and whoever's who's ever driving won't pull over so johnny hangs out the passenger side window and starts peeing, and it's all blowing back on me in the second row of seats. So that happens before the whole Burger King incident. I, I, it was either Burger King or Popeyes or or Bojangles or something like that. So, so they go in for drive-through, and they mow down the whole thing there, the whole light-up screen with the speaker. Can I take your order? Can I take your order, order, please? That whole thing gets flattened. <laughs> and they say, quick, get back to the hotel, get back, get back, get back. So they get back to the hotel unscathed. 
no license plate, no nothing. Uh, we go to bed and then at like five thirty in the morning, the next day, we get a call from Ted Petty. He goes, Chris, wake up, Billy. <laughs> Johnny's in jail. <laughs> so the story was we had all gotten back unscathed from this crazy turn of events. But Johnny went back out. Of course and, he did. And the production team had called in a stolen vehicle report on top of it. So he was in the production team's van, and that's how he got caught, supposedly. Not only not only has Bill DeMott told that story years ago on this podcast, but uh, Eric Bischoff actually was on this podcast, and I asked him of his memories of that, and uh, it was very interesting. But what, what, so wait, so so oh, I'm so petrified. I'm brand new, trying to be a model employee, and I'm like tied into this whole thing there. But for me personally, for me personally, the funniest part of this whole story that was before cell phones. It was. It was before the internet. So you know how when you play a telephone, the story morphs from person <laughs> to person, right? Sure. And I'm from New Jersey. So I got back from the tapings. By the time that story had gotten back to New Jersey and New York, it wasn't the production team's van. It was the production truck, like the Turner satellite truck was stolen and we mowed down <laughs> the, the window of a Burger King or a Bojangles or something. And me, Johnny Grunge, Ted Petty, and Bill DeMott were driving around in this giant truck with a satellite on it and doing who knows what down in uh, Orlando, Florida. So that's what the, what the whole story morphed into, which I, I, I think personally is a way better story. And, and for those, not for you, because you were stuck in circumstance. But and I was those, petrified. Yeah, of course. But for those of you who, who may be hearing this story or, or hearing about these guys for the first time, for the other three, that was called a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I found that out real quick. I knew, <laughs> I knew yeah. Bill from my gym. He was a big brother, father figure. But the second I got to Orlando and roomed with him, the whole dynamic changed. And I learned really quick. If I remember correctly, you never left your room again, other than to go to the matches. Yeah, pretty much. If, <laughs> if you think back, Pens, honestly, I would. I w would go to a bar occasionally. I would have a few beers here or there, but I really wasn't one of those guys that went out a lot. And in hindsight, probably killed me politically. Naive Chris Ford thought that he uh, would keep were, his nose. You were, you were, I can't speak for ECW, but in WCW, you were nice enough that, that, that nobody, you know, other people might get called on something like that, but you were nice enough nobody called you on it. Oh, thank you, man. Cool. Awesome. But yeah, but those other guys, uh, and, and especially, you know, Grunge and, and, and uh, Ted Petty, who are two of my Amazing. people I miss so much. What an act they were. And when I say act, I don't mean public enemy. I mean, like, uh, two o'clock in uh, the morning at a nightclub, you know, you got to, you know, it's just, um, you know, Petty, Teddy always tried to look out for Grunge, but then he of course. But then he'd do, you know, half the stuff that Grunge would do. And he, you know, so it just it became like almost a comedy act. And, um, yeah, I really miss those two guys. Very I, ironic story. Uh, 
Ted Petty was the first guy I'd ever seen on an independent show. There was an independent show in my hometown, and the first match was the Cheetah Kid, Ted Petty, uh, like against Johnny Hotbody, I think. And ironically, and, and I still say this, I was Ted Petty's last match. We did a, a match in Jersey City, and he, 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 he had a double shot that night. And I remember having a conversation with Teddy. He said, what do you want to do, Teddy? He goes, let's just go out there. I'll never forget it. He goes, let's go out there and just have some fun. He goes, wrestling hasn't really been fun for us. Let's go out there. We'll call it out there. Let's just have some fun and do a fun, hardcore match. We had a fun, hardcore match. I, you know, we finished up and then he drove off to his, his second shot and he never made it. Yeah. It's so it's still one of the, I mean, there's been a lot of tough days in, in my life as, uh, as, as us uh, uh, being in the wrestling business. And, um, and that was as tough as they get. Uh, maybe sure. Sam, great maybe guy. Sam Such a great guy. It was funny. We had Jasmine St. Clair on the podcast last month and I asked her about, uh, the public enemy and she could sort of reminded me cause you forget certain things that Ted Petty was like almost everybody's psychologist, like therapist, you know, you yeah. go to Ted, if you had, you know, problems, you needed advice, you know, cause he was always, he always gave great advice and he was yep. so patient, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame those guys are uh, gone, and that's ironic that you wrestled uh, him in his last match. But you know what? Probably happened for a reason. Sure. Um, yep. So, so let's talk about right now. You have a successful business in uh, New Jersey, doing what you do, uh, happily married with a wonderful family. Um, but you still uh, are dabbling a little bit and trying to reinvent yourself in the pro wrestling business. I knew you had. I know you had a little bit of uh, a, a fly in with. Um, Ring of Honor before this whole pandemic thing hit and kind of sure. a new character. Tell me about what keeps you hungry and, and, and what went into this new character and if, if you have any interest in exploring it once uh, the world gets back to normal. Well, going back to where WCW ended and, you know, one of the best things, and it sounds, once again, I'm saying very cliche to say, things happen for a reason. God has a plan. Not picked up by WWE. And I did an independent show uh, in in Delaware for ECWA, and uh, I had gone back there, and I'm great friends with Simon Diamond and Dawn Marie at the time, and she was working with a young newcomer pro wrestler named uh, at the time. I like I think her name was. Uh, Dina Devine and our eyes lock and sparks fly and wow. yada, yada, yada. 20 years later, uh, uh, <laughs> married 16 years, two kids. And, and we both share this love for wrestling. It, it works great. She's also in healthcare and I'm in healthcare. She's a registered dietitian. I'm a physical therapist. We love wrestling. We still wrestle together. And, Around 2006, I had this idea about kind of like an eyes wide shutty kind of reinvention of crowbar and yada, 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 and just never really had the, uh, was the platform to explore it with. And a lot of people were under the impression that I actually retired or I disappeared. Some people actually asked me if on a lot of, so I, am I dead? <laughs> but, and I get it because for probably a, a good 10 or 12 years, if you didn't go to in, 
independent shows in North Jersey, you really didn't see me. I really stayed about a half hour from home. I pursued my physical therapy, but I kept my foot in pro wrestling because I just freaking love it. I wasn't trying to advance myself. I was just doing it once or twice a month just because I, I just enjoy it and I love it. I love doing it with my wife. It's something that I'm passionate about. I like working hard still. I like going out there and doing some stuff. And then for whatever reason, uh, last July, this other thing, I usually stay 30 minutes from home. Uh, I got a call to take a booking in Baltimore, a three hour drive, July. Usually in July, I want to be in my yard, in my pool, grilling with friends and doing a fire pit and this and that. For whatever reason, something prompts me to take this date. I I have no idea why to this day. It was one of those things just meant to happen. I go down there and I guess I'm in shape and I'm still doing my stuff and I'm moving well. And there's an official there from Ring of Honor, uh, Kevin Eck, who at, at the time wrote for WCW Magazine when we were there, yeah. and he asked me if I had any interest in doing some Ring of Honor work. I said, absolutely, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, it's fun doing the, in, the independence, but you know, it's always fun doing it on a bigger stage. It's more, it's more of a deal. It, it just feels better. There's a synergy. There's an energy there. Yeah. So we spoke back and forth for months, and originally I was supposed to work with PCO, which would have been sick on their unsanctioned <laughs> pay-per-view. Uh, it eventually got changed to Danny Math, and I love Dan Math from New Jersey, great New Jersey guy, big, strong guy. It would definitely would have been a much different match than Dan Math had, had with PCO. I'm clearly not going to lift PCO up or slam him or anything like that. Dan Math's more of a power guy. You know, I think my match would have been more aerial stuff, maybe some tables and rails and stuff, but, uh, it got pushed to December where it, it, it was just set to be a good TV match with Eli Isom. And I go out there with my wife, Dina, you know, who's kind of wearing this Victorian gown with a Victorian or Mardi Gras face mask. You know, are, are we weirdos? Are we eyes wide shut people? Are we swingers? What is it? Just kind of one of those ambiguous things that I always thought would be cool. And we have this huge dude with us. And I I think that's actually a really cool story. He's, we're not sure if he's Percival pain or just straight up pain. Uh, About four years ago, this guy walked into my clinic as a patient. He's an Iraqi Afghanistan war vet. This gigantic man walks through my door and he's coming in with a prescription for elbow tendonitis. And we just forged this friendship. He has an interest in pro wrestling. He recognizes who I am. Uh, there's, uh, he has a really tight schedule, but there's a local wrestling school, a town over that I refer him to. I help to train him. And a lot of his earlier shows were all veteran benefit shows. So he would be the army guy. And I was the heel and I worked with him a lot and yada, yada, yada. As I said before, I had this idea for this eyes wide, shutty, elitist, weirdo gimmick years ago. And he was really the missing component of like the attendant or the bodyguard. The bodyguard is overused. I always like the word uh, attendant. Well, Steve Regal, when uh, one of my favorite characters of all time is Steve Regal, like in that 95 ish 
uh, time. He had to cape. He had that regal m- music from, you know, that really r- ritzy, regal sounding music, but he had Bill Dundee with him, who was an attendant. And yep. no one uses the word attendant anymore. I, I go, that's who you are. You're not a bodyguard. Everybody has a bodyguard. You're an, an attendant. But when all that stuff came off, when Regal lost the wig, when he lost the cape, when Bill Dundee went to ringside, you saw some great wrestling. And that's what I'm trying to recapture. I'm trying to bring character back because I think in, in a lot of wrestling these days, you lose the fun stuff, the character, bring the character. But once the match starts, do some really good damn wrestling. For sure. For sure. Hey, um, real quick, uh, uh, for people that uh, might just have found out that you're alive. Um, yeah. <laughs> where, I know you're on, I know you're on Twitter. Where, where can they find you on Twitter or Facebook or both? Twitter is at WCW crowbar. I kind of keep my Facebook for like more professional stuff, like uh, physical therapy and home. So, Twitter's cool at WCW Crowbar. One last question for you. You're an Shoot. intelligent guy. You're in the medical, well, maybe you're you're in the medical <laughs> industry, and um, you're in in gr- really ground zero of what uh, is going on right now in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, what are your thoughts? How do we how, how do we come back from this? Uh, you know, not to put you on the spot, but you know, you, you pretty much fit the bill as somebody who has experience in, 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 you know, medical and, and are living through, uh, right in the middle. How, how do you think this ends up? Or do you even know? I'm really not sure, honestly. And it's not a cop at all. I'm not seeing, Oh no, it changes no, we're still every seeing, day. We're still seeing patients now, but we're on an outpatient basis. We're not in the hospital. We're not really on, on, on the front lines. We're essential to seeing patients on an outpatient basis. Uh, it's And as you said, stuff seems to change each and every day. What we know now, much different than what we knew at, at the beginning. I think there needs to be a balance between safety and restoring the economy. And I don't know what that is. I will tell you for me personally, I'm cheering for you guys out in Florida. I hope it works out great. And and I hope that it works out so great to say, yeah, we can do this. And I'm, my fingers are crossed. I'm praying and I'm really pulling for you guys to pull it off. Selfishly, I have a, I have a vacation planned by you guys in July. I'm hoping to go down. I, I love it down by you guys. And, and, and of course the, you know, the priority is safety, but I mean, I don't think there's a person out there that doesn't want to at least start walking back to normal if that's possible and if that's safe. And, and I don't think, and I don't believe there's a person out there that wants to do it as soon as possible, as long as it's safe. I, I, I think a lot of people got cabin fever and we're all going through a really tough time. The weather up here was great last weekend. And I honestly, I, I was outside in my yard all Saturday, all Sunday, and it felt good to be out. We were in the pool. We had a fire pit going and it just felt good to be out what the answer is, I don't know. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, but it, I'm saying it's, we're all, I'm like everybody else. I'm sure I want to get back to normal as fast as, as possible, as long as it's safe. Yeah. And that's not a cop out. I mean, two months ago, I'd have bet you my house that they wouldn't have canceled WrestleMania here in Tampa. I had a bet on, Absolutely. uh, Me with, either. Uh, 
with the ring announcer for Evolve, I owe him a couple of drinks. Uh, now that the bars are open or the restaurants are leased, I probably will have to go pay him uh, for the bet. Now I'm up at three o'clock in the morning watching uh, Empty Arena South Korean Baseball League. And, yep. and and because it's the only sports on, you know, and, and, and dying for empty arena, you know, Major League Baseball or empty arena, Major League Football. You know, I had tickets to so many concerts this summer because so many great bands were touring and that's not going to happen. But at this point, just some sort of normalcy, you know, if you'd have told me I'd have been excited to, you know, to be able to watch uh, a baseball game uh, with no fans in the arena. If you'd asked me in February, I'd have told you, you know, what are you talking about? You're your mind it, it changes every day it's 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 uncharted territory but i appreciate you um not ducking the question and i appreciate you coming and sitting ringside man really great stuff you're one of the good a lot ones of fun, man uh Thank if you, you end so up making it down this way uh for vacation be sure to hit me up and uh drinks on me and um stay safe more than anything and uh stay in touch dave thank you very fun Great time talking to you, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on and uh, the opportunity to tell my story. Thank you so much, man. want to thank Devin Storm, a.k.a. Crowbar, for sitting down and chatting with us for well over an hour. Great stuff. And, um, folks, if, uh, if you have an aspiration to get in the wrestling business or you know somebody who does, that's the story that you want to – play for them so that they have options uh, in their life. And as much as he was living his dream and loving it uh, on Nitro as tech champions and hardcore champions wrestling Terry Funk, uh, the one thing he didn't have to worry about when WCW closed and so many did was how to make a living. So it's very important uh, even in the year 2020, probably more important. So uh, if you liked the interview, be sure to spread the word. Uh, be sure to subscribe. And uh, again, you can follow me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word. You can follow Crowbar at WCW Crowbar on Twitter as well. And um, we're going to be back next week with another big guest talking about their career and stories from the road as we do each and every week. David Penzer still here. Sit at ringside. We'll see you next time. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. College administrator says we fully expect to be open in the fall and have students on campus. But again, if you listen to the caveats to the statement or what they don't say is they're not definitively saying it. And I think people are hoping that those statements are definitive that students are coming football's definitely on nothing's definitely on they're making the statements <laughs> because they want students to send in their deposits you know they, they don't want a, a flurry of students to say you know what or their parents to say you know what i let's just hold off sending the deposit maybe you know We'll do something else, and maybe we'll do some online classes. No, what they want is students to send in their deposits. And I think, again, universities are looking at, all right, what what do we need to do? Do we need to have more sections of classes? So if you've got a class that has 300 people in it in a, in a, um, in a big auditorium, do you have a 
that same class in different sections where maybe only 50 people are in it and you've got five or six sessions. Can you do that and spread them out? Well, all of that is important because it's, I think, going to be highly influential on whether players can come back to campus. And remember, players normally come back, football players normally come back to campus before students do in the fall because they get together for two days. So I think that's going to happen. But the process of having games without fans is a little bit trickier, not just because of the college atmosphere. We know it's going to look weird if you don't have people in the stadium and whatnot. I get all of that. But it's going to be a tough sell to say, student athlete, he can go play football, but he can't go to class on campus. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.